I'd like to turn your attention this morning to the 17th chapter of the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 17. Beginning in verse 1, it's recorded, And all the congregation of the children of Israel journeyed from the wilderness of sin after their journeys, according to the commandment of the Lord, and pitched in Rephidim, and there was no water for the people to drink. Wherefore the people did chide with Moses, and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said unto them, Why chide ye with me? Wherefore do ye tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water, and the people murmured against Moses and said, Wherefore is this that thou hast brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our cattle with thirst? And Moses cried unto the Lord, saying, What shall I do unto this people? They be almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go on before the people, and take with thee of the elders of Israel and thy rod, wherewith thou smotest the river, take in thine hand and go. Behold, I will stand before thee there upon the rock in Horeb, and thou shalt smite the rock, and there shall come water out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah, because the chiding of the children of Israel, because they tempted the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Then came Amalek and fought with Israel and Rephidim. And Moses said unto Joshua, Choose out men, and go out, fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in mine hand. So Joshua did as Moses had said to him, and fought with Amalek. And Moses and Aaron and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And it came to pass, when Moses held up his hand, that Israel prevailed. And when he let his hand down, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands were heavy. And they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat thereon, and Aaron and Hur stayed up his hands, the one on the one side and the other on the other side, and his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua discomfited Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. And the Lord said unto Moses, Write this for memorial in a book, and rehearse it in the ears of Joshua, for I will utterly put out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it Jehovah Nisi, which means the Lord is my banner. For he said, because the Lord has sworn that the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Um, I hope all of you are um, engaging in reading through the word of God this year. Um, for me, as I've, if you've noticed uh, the sermons over the past few weeks, have coincided with the readings, and um, there's not been a single day uh, in the reading that something has not jumped out at me that I haven't seen before. Uh, I told you before that I've read novels that after a couple readings, I can read them a third time, and there's nothing new in it. I've, I've gleaned everything there is to glean. There's nothing left. Uh, that's not true with the Word of God. We, you could read it through five times a year, every year of your life, study it to the depths that you could study it, and you will never, ever uncover all that God has in his word. It is new and fresh. And um, number one, because it speaks of an infinite God, and so, of course, we'll never reach the end of it. Uh, and our minds just can't grasp it all. And 
Now, there's things that maybe I'm seeing as I read through that I've seen before, but I've just forgotten that I've saw them before. But either way, it's still good to be refreshed. As I was reading this week uh, and saw the deliverance of the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt, I began to see a pattern and some things began to strike me that I haven't really noticed before in exactly how the Lord dealt with Israel, some of the early mercies that he showed in their murmurings regarding certain things and certain things that God was still uh, very much uh, angered by when the children of Israel would murmur against him. For instance, as you read up to this point, you'll only find one time, if I've counted correctly and read correctly, only one time that I find that the Lord seems to get upset with Israel. Um, when they get to the Red Sea, the Lord is very patient and understanding with them. Uh, when they get to Mara, to the bitter waters, the Lord is very patient and understanding with them. Uh, when they get here in this situation and they chide with Moses about water, he's very patient with them. Now, in chapter 16, when he gives them manna from heaven and they go out on the Sabbath day, the Lord speaks to Moses about that, and the Lord's quite upset that they go out on the Sabbath. He has respect to the Sabbath, and even though they are young in their journeys with the Lord, God expects that they should know the Lord's day. That teaches me a lot, <laughs> that the Lord, even though he's so kind and patient with them about their other murmurings and complainings, when they disrespected the day of God, even in their early journeys, God uh, spoke about that. God responded. God reacted. And God uh, made sure Moses let the people know that they were not to have any disrespect towards the day of God. That lets me know that I need to esteem the Lord's day as the best week, day of the week, the highest day of the week. And obviously, the word of God compels us, constrains us, commands us. That on the Lord's day, the first day of the week, we're supposed to be where? We're to be here in the Lord's house. And so as I read through Exodus 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, you'll find that the one time that God really reacts uh, to the disobedience of the children of Israel is when they do not respect the Sabbath. As God delivers the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt, as you read about the Passover and the death of the firstborn and, and Pharaoh uh, drives them out and the people are given favor in the sight of the Egyptians and they borrow gold and silver and they go out very wealthy. You'll find that in Exodus 13, it says that God did not send them by the way of the Philistines, which was nearer. And the reason being is that if they faced war, God knew they might repent, meaning they might turn back and go to Egypt. So instead, God sends them the long way around. And in so doing, God brings them to the Red Sea. So God, there was a shorter way to get out of Egypt. But God knew they would face the Philistines. Now, they're going to face the Philistines in the future. But they're going to be better equipped in the future to deal with the Philistines than they are right now. They've been slaves. They've not been soldiers. They've been servants to Egypt. They don't know how to battle. They don't know how to fight. They're young in their following the Lord. They're disciples of God right now. They're following the leadership of God. He led them, Exodus 13 says, uh, by a pillar of cloud by day 
and a pillar of fire by night. So God is leading the people of Israel. They are disciples or followers after him. And you're going to find that in their infancy as being disciples of the God of heaven, he's understanding of where they are in the journey. That's important for us to understand because we also are followers of God. We, I trust, are all here disciples, learners, followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's things that the children of Israel went through that we can relate to that apply to us. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that the things that they went through were in samples or examples for you and I. So it is right, it's vital even to read the book of Exodus, uh, the book of Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy because in there, Paul says you're going to find examples that are expressly written for us, but also that those people went through that will help us. They will help us to avoid pitfalls. They will help us to avoid sins. Uh, they will help us to avoid a lot of things that we shouldn't do, but it'll also teach us a lot about how we should behave before the Lord. So again, as I've tried to point out, as we've looked at some of the experiences as we read throughout the Old these are not dead pages at all. Uh, these are not stories that are just to be glossed over and passed by and uh, check off the counter. Now listen, I check off every day when I do my reading. Uh, I check it off, but I try uh, to glean from it something that will be applicable uh, to me so that hopefully I will be a better follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so here in their early journeys, God knows that as young disciples, as new followers, they're not equipped yet to battle. And so God does not allow them to face the Philistines and potentially go to war. They're not ready for that. They don't know how to fight. And young disciples, followers of Jesus, even though Satan will come against them, they need the nurture of the family of God, but also the help of the providence of God uh, because they're not yet equipped to know exactly how uh, to uh, thwart off the fiery darts of Satan. And so thankfully God is very tender. Uh, the book of Isaiah uh, tells us that he will lead those gently uh, who are with young I uh, mean, he understands that those who are young parents and young children, that they need the gentle care of God as he leads them forth. And so here in Exodus 13, God is careful. He knows they can't handle the battle yet. And so he doesn't allow them to go this way. So he sends them the long way. Now, of course, we know the story. But at the time, if you were among the followers of Moses, and you could see a shortcut over here, but now he's taking us the long way over here, and now we come to a Red Sea. There's a sea before you, and then all of a sudden you begin to hear the noise of horses and the wheels of chariots. What would you think? Why didn't we go the other way? Uh, but see, they're about to be delivered out of Egypt in a very powerful, miraculous way. Paul would say it this way, they were all baptized unto Moses in the sea. They're going to come out of Egypt in a way that they could not claim any glory. See, if they had fought the Philistines and successfully went the shortcut, they could have said, look how we got ourselves out of Egypt. Now listen, Egypt in the Bible is a picture of sin and bondage and death. 
And every child of God who's uh, uh, conceived in the womb of their mother, they are born in a state of sin. Now they may be regenerated in their mother's womb and even from infancy uh, be one of the Lord's born again children of God. But there's a time in each of our experience that we dwelt in the land of Egypt. That we were bondservants uh, to this world and to Satan and to wickedness. Uh, that's real. And we did not get ourselves out of that. We didn't fight our way out. We didn't conjure in our minds some kind of wisdom to think our way out of it. It took the mighty and powerful hand of God to remove us from the land of bondage and the land of death and bring us to the land of the living. So God brings them to the Red Sea on purpose. See, God, this isn't accidental. Uh, God purposely didn't let them go one way. Number one, he knew that they would repent me and they would turn back. They would flee and go right back to the land of death. And there's times in our experience that if we're not careful that the things that we face are so difficult, we would go back to the way of death. We would go back to the way of affliction, to the way of trial. You know, it's a, there's a, what's it called? There's a syndrome for people who have been battered and abused and go through, is it the Stockholm Syndrome? I think it's called, I don't remember anyway, that it's... People are sometimes amazed that, for instance, a spouse will stay with uh, her husband even though she's abused and beaten, but it's what she knows. And even though that's fearful, uh, going out from underneath his wing and his care, as terrible as it is, is even more fearful. So they stay right where they're at. And sometimes it's the nature of humans to go back to what they know. How many times do you read here in Exodus that they said, would it not have been better? <laughs> We'd have been better to stay in Egypt. We had flesh pots. Later they'll say, we had cucumbers, we had leeks, we had melons, we had all this. But you know what they forgot about? They forgot about the taskmasters. Masters. They forgot the hard bondage. They forgot about the slavery. Uh, all they thought about is what they had to eat. And if we're not careful, we can forget about how bad it was that God delivered us out of a very terrible plight. And even though our present situation might be difficult, it's still better than where we were in our past journey. So here the children of Israel, they're brought to the Red Sea. And again, they hear the wheels of the chariots. They hear the, the hooves of the horses. And before long, they're going to see the dust rising of Pharaoh's army as uh, Pharaoh, uh, his wits come back to him and say, What have I done? I've let all my slaves go free. And they've taken the wealth of Egypt with them. But see, God knew that would be in his heart. His heart would be hardened one last time. But God is going to destroy him. Uh, if you will, here Pharaoh is a picture of Satan. Uh, and he is a, a destroyed foe. Understand that. Satan right now is a defeated, destroyed foe. Uh, the Bible says in Genesis chapter 3 that the Lord Jesus Christ would bruise his head. Uh, that means that he would put him to death. Uh, Satan is like a serpent that has been uh, shot and uh, he, he's dying, he's dead, but he still uh, has impact. Um, I think you all know the story of last year or so and uh, Brother Quentin and I had a, quite an interesting story with a rattlesnake out in the side yard. And um, when we finally got that thing killed, the very first thing I want to do is cut its head off and dig a hole and bury the head. Brother Quentin hadn't done that before. He, he didn't, why would he do that? Well, that snake can still bite. That snake is still venomous. And even after its head was cut off, it still would try to strike. It's in its nature. That's Satan right now. He's just like a snake that has been uh, wounded and a mortal wound, but he still has venom. 
And that's Satan. But the Lord is going to show the Israelites his power of destruction. And so they come to the Red Sea. And of course, you know the story. God uh, tells Moses to uh, take the rod of God and the seas are parted. Exodus 15, when they sing the song of their uh, glorious redemption and their victory and their deliverance. Uh, they said that uh, the Lord, he's a man of war. They also said that the water stood on a heap. They were congealed. Uh, the Bible describes it this way, that uh, he sent a strong east wind. And through the strong east wind, those waters were parted and a tunnel was created. And then there was dry ground for the people of Israel to walk upon. And then a cloud comes and appears over. And here they literally go through a tunnel. They're immersed. They're baptized unto Moses there in the sea. But interestingly, as this is all going on all night long, this wind is blowing, the seas are parted, and you got the Egyptians right here, and the Israelites right here. God keeps a division between them the whole night. And as the children of Israel go across dry shod, what happens with the Egyptians? Their chariots are mired in the mud. And then finally, when the very last child of Israel, the last one that belonged to, Joseph, to Jacob, crosses over, including the bones of Joseph, then all of a sudden, God, he brings the seas back together again. And the children of Israel, they stand and watch in awe as their enemy is defeated by the hand of God. And I tell you, at the last day when the Lord Jesus Christ comes back, you and I are going to stand in awe as the victorious and triumph, uh, uh, triumphant Jesus Christ uh, vanquishes forever every enemy uh, that has ever stood and withstood himself against God. Uh, we'll see the vanquishing of Satan, the vanquishing of hell, uh, the vanquishing of death. All those enemies that we have faced throughout our lives, we are going to see the Lord Jesus Christ with a high and mighty and powerful hand remove all of those enemies from our sight, never to see them again anymore that's what you and I'll be blessed to behold so in Exodus 15 they sing that song they end up uh, at the waters of Mara right after all of this and they can't drink and the people murmur against Moses saying what shall we drink and he cries to the Lord and it's interesting what the Lord tells him to do at Mara there's a specific tree you could call it, if you will, a tree of life, a tree of sweetness, a tree of deliverance, a beautiful picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what was to be done? That tree was to be hewn down and cast in the waters. And those bitter waters, the Bible said, were made sweet. And then right after that, they come to a place called Elam. And there were 12 wells of water and 70 palm trees. And there they camped by the waters. Now, I probably would have stayed right there, but God doesn't let them. He, he sends them forth. They began complaining about their food. If you recall, they go out eating unleavened bread. They don't have time to prepare other uh, food to take with them. Now they're, they're hungry. And so God, in his kindness, he sends them quail and he sends them manna. And he lets them know it's going to happen six days a week. On five of those days, they're to collect enough for a day. And any more than that, It'll breed worms and it'll stink. It'll spoil. Well, what do they do? In the nature of humans, they pile up more than they need. And what happens? The next morning, it stinks because it's spoiled. Now comes the Sabbath day. The Lord tells them on Friday, you gather double. 
Well, they've done seen it spoiled. So they don't trust what the Lord has said. So some of them, they come out of their tents on the Sabbath day together, but there's no manna. They don't have it because God hasn't rained it that day because God said he wasn't going to. Then that's the time that he speaks with Moses where God is upset because they've disrespected the day of God. Now we come to where we started this morning in Exodus chapter 17. It says, All the congregation of the children of Israel journeyed from the wilderness of sin after their journeys. Notice this. According to the commandment of the Lord. Remember, they are followers of God. These people are in the will of God. They're doing what God has told them to do. So they journey, how? According or in agreement to the commandment or with the commandment of the Lord. So they're not going contrary to God. They're walking exactly as God has directed them go. And listen, as you follow how the Lord directs, you're going to encounter difficulties. The Lord Jesus Christ says, in this world ye shall have tribulation. He said, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. Uh, he told us that so that we would not be dreamy-eyed when we become disciples thinking that all of our troubles are behind us once that we commit ourselves and consecrate our lives to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. That's not how it's going to work. When the Lord Jesus was baptized, what happened? The Bible says that immediately following that, he was carried by the Spirit in the wilderness, and there for 40 days and 40 nights he didn't eat, and he was tempted of Satan. The Lord didn't have 40 days of rejoicing and gladness and everybody just thronging him because he's followed the commandment of God. No, he has to contend with Satan in those early days of his obedience to his father by being baptized in the river Jordan. So understand, when you commit yourself to follow God, there's going to be difficulties in the way. Don't think, oh, I'm a follower of Jesus, and because of that, my life will be at ease. I'll never face another trouble. No, your troubles have just started. Because as soon as you make the conscious decision to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, now you've got a foe that really wants to destroy you. See, when you were the servant of Satan, he didn't have to bother you. You already did the things he wanted you to do. But as soon as you say, I'm not going to follow him, but I'm going to follow the Lord Jesus Christ and his righteousness, he considers that a threat to his dominion here on this earth. And you become a marked enemy of Satan and he will come after you with all that he has. So don't think just because you're following the commandment of God that everything is going to go smoothly and there'll be no trouble and that you'll never face any uh, kind of want or difficulty. Notice these people are following uh, in their journeys according to the commandment of the Lord and they pitch and riff at them and there was no water for the people to drink. All right, so at Mara, the waters were bitter. The Lord had a solution. He just says, you take this particular tree, you cut it down, throw it in the waters, and the waters were made sweet. Then they come to Elam, and there was a solution there for about two million individuals. There were 12 wells of water for them to drink. But now God, in His leading of these people, He's brought them to a place that later we're going to find is called um, uh, Meribah and Massa, meaning uh, uh, chiding and tempting. <laughs> uh, so this is where, the, but there's no water. Now, this is a dangerous situation. What they're facing here, we might read it now and why they get so upset. As you know, you can, you can go quite a while without food. 
But your time without water is very, very short. There's a reason Jesus is called the living water. You need water naturally to survive. You need the Lord Jesus Christ to spiritually survive. And here they are in a real desperate situation. Notice it says the people did chide with Moses said, give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, why chide you with me? Wherefore, why do you tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water. So it's not that, well, we might run out in a few days. No, they're already in a very uh, dangerous situation. They're in jeopardy. Notice it says, uh, why or wherefore is this that thou hast brought us up out of Egypt to kill us, our children, and our cattle with thirst? These people are feeling thirsty. I mean, you've been thirsty, have you not? I've been that way, and there's been a few times in my life that I was thirsty and I had nothing to drink, and it was going to be a little ways before I could get to where I could get a drink of water. And that's all I could think about. I mean, when you're really parched and you're really thirsty and you're beginning to feel uh, the powers and effects of dehydration, you don't think about anything else except I need to get to water. Now, thankfully, like I said, I've always had it fairly close at hand. It might be an hour or so away, but... As I travel in my work and each vehicle that I have, I have a case of water. Uh, I don't go anywhere without a, a case of water. I never know where I, I may be down in some pasture and get stuck and I'll at least have some bottles of water uh, to make sure that I uh, don't get too thirsty there. But anyway, these people are in a real troublesome situation. We shouldn't minimize what they're going through. And we shouldn't minimize what our fellow brother or sister is going through. When they're hurting and when they're in want, when they're thirsting in need for the Lord, we shouldn't just, you know, shrug that off. The Lord didn't. Notice the Lord didn't tell Moses, you go back and tell that unfaithful people. Now later God will, as they grow in their discipleship, there's times the Lord is going to get angry. But right now, he shows himself very much, again, they're in the very beginnings of their journeys. They're in a, they were 430 years in Egypt. They didn't have to worry about any of these things. It was all provided for them. They didn't have to wonder about these things. Even when the rivers were turned to blood, the children of Israel still had water to drink. When the Egyptians for seven days, even their pools and every vessel of water they had was turned to blood and they had nothing to drink, whatever. They even went to the riverside just digging in the sand in hopes of finding some water. The children of Israel, even in that uh, destitute situation for the Egyptians, the children of Israel had water to drink. They've never faced this before. So the Lord in his kindness, he says to Moses, you go on before the people and take with thee of the elders of Israel and thy rod, wherewith thou smotest the river, take in thine hand and go. And behold, look at this, behold, I will stand before thee upon the rock in Horeb. The word Horeb means desert. Now, if I'm looking for water... The last place I'm hunting is a desert. You know, I'm looking for pools. I'm looking for, you know, some place where there's greenery, trees, something to indicate there's life. But here God says, you go and I'm going to stand before you upon a rock in Horeb, a specific rock, not just any rock. First Corinthians verse, uh, chapter 10, verse 4, he says, that rock which followed them was Christ. God says, I'm going to stand upon the rock in Horeb. 
and thou shalt smite the rock, and there shall come water out of it that the people may drink. This is completely contrary to nature. I mean, God says, first of all, go to the desert, and then I'm going to stand on a rock, and Moses, you take this rod, uh, here it is, a dead stick, and you hit this dead rock, and all of a sudden, water's going to come out. It'll be a fountain of water, enough to feed two million people plus all of their herds and cattle. I think I said, are you sure, Lord? <laughs> but, you know, Moses does what the Lord says, and he goes and he did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place, once again, Massa and Meribah, because of the chiding of the children of Israel, and because they tempted the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us or not? Listen, when times of destitution come, it's natural. It's not right, but it's natural to think, is the Lord with me anymore? Well, the Lord, again, took pity on this people. He didn't chide with Moses like they chode with Mo how they chided with Moses. He, he's merciful. He's pitiful. He understands. They've not seen this before. They've not gone through this before. Now, later again, God won't have the same level of patience that he has right now. That teaches me that God does understand where we are in our journey of discipleship. That he is mindful of those who are new in the faith and those who are seasoned in the faith. Uh, for those who are seasoned in the faith, we have a lot less excuse, if I can claim myself to be in that category, a lot less excuse for our murmurings and disputings and complainings about how God provides for us. But those who are new in the faith, they haven't experienced these things before. They haven't journeyed this way before. They haven't felt these cravings before. They don't know what this is yet. And so the Lord shows himself very merciful. And here God provides in a miraculous way by telling Moses to strike a certain rock that he would stand upon in a desert place. And all of a sudden, this people would have all that they could want to drink. Now then, the next situation comes. So they come out, they face the Red Sea, they get past the Red Sea, they come to bitter waters, then they deal with the issue of no food, now they come and they deal with the issue of nothing to drink. They, they've faced it all, have they not? No, not yet. Now all of a sudden, it says, then came Amalek and fought with Israel and Rephidim. Now remember... In Exodus 13, God would not bring them out the nearer way because the Philistines, if they had to go to battle with them, they would very likely repent and go back to Egypt. So God didn't let them go that way. Now, as they fight against the Amalekites, you'll find that God does not forget this. Uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 25, it describes the nature of how the Amalekites fought. In Deut Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 17, here's what God says. Remember what Amalek did unto thee by the way when ye were come forth out of Egypt. He says, how he met thee by the way and smote the hindmost of thee, even all that were feeble behind thee when thou was faint and weary, and he feared not God. Therefore it shall be when the Lord thy God hath given thee rest from all thine enemies round about in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee for inheritance to possess it, that thou shalt blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. Thou shalt not forget it. <laughs> forget what? What they did and the fact that I'm telling you to destroy them. Later in the book of 1 Samuel, you'll find that God speaks to Samuel to give commandment to Saul. How that Amalek is to be utterly destroyed. Man, woman, boy, girl, and every beast 
Because God remembers exactly how Amalek came and fought against Israel. Notice again, he says, they came to the hindmost, where the feeble were. It was at the back of the crowd where the elderly were, where the children were, where the sick and the infirm were. Uh, Satan, when he attacks, he doesn't attack us at our strongest flank. He will always attack us at our weakest point. And that's exactly what Amalek does here. And again, another picture of Satan and how he will fight against you. The Lord Jesus Christ says in John the 8th chapter, the 44th verse, John 8, 44, He reminds us about Satan, about his nature. He says, He was a murderer from the beginning. Listen, I, I've already told you, He's a vanquished enemy. He's a destroyed foe. But do not let that let you belittle in your mind the strength that He still possesses. As I already mentioned, that rattlesnake that we get, the poison when it was dead versus when it was alive, would have still sent me or somebody else to the hospital. Listen, Satan, again, he's a vanquished foe, but he's still a dangerous foe. Now the Bible says, greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. And so long as you and I will rely upon the strength of the Lord Jesus Christ, which abides in us, then we can face uh, the foe of Satan and withstand him. Uh, the Bible says, having done all to stand. And you know what happens when you just stand firm with the devil? He flees. <laughs> but he comes back. And so you may have to turn and uh, face another flank and do it again and stand firm. And he'll flee again. But he keeps looking. I love what the Lord said in the book of Isaiah. He lets us know that he goes before us. He says, but I will also be your rearward. It means I'm going to protect you all the way around. Now, eternally, that's, that's so. We're protected completely. Safe in Christ. None can ever take us from that position. But that doesn't mean that while we journey in this world, in the wilderness of what this world is, <laughs> that we're not going to have Amalekites come and attack us at our feeble points. Satan knows where we're weak. And he's going to use that. And, he, and it's, he knows how to be. Again, Jesus said he's, he's a murderer from the beginning. And then he says, and he's a liar and the father of it. So Jesus tells us enough about the nature of Satan in one verse that I know he's a murderer and he's a liar. So I don't need to believe a thing that he says because he's going to lie to me for what purpose? So that he can slay me. And that's exactly what he wants to do with you. What did Jesus say to Peter? He says, Simon, Simon. He said, Satan hath desired thee that he might sift thee as wheat. He said, but I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, strengthen the brethren. So he says, Simon, Peter, you need to understand that Satan has desired you. He's got his attention on you. He's focused on you. I can see that. You may not be able to see it, but I know that he wants to sift you just like somebody would sift wheat. What's that mean? He wants to destroy you. He says, but I've prayed for you that your faith fail not. I hope and I trust and I believe that the Lord is doing the same for me. But the Lord has also given commandment to us in the scriptures of how we're to be circumspect with Satan. Well, now the Lord, again, he wouldn't let them fight the Philistines. He lets them see the mighty hand of God bring them out from Egypt and sees, they see Pharaoh and his chariots destroyed. They understand what it is to need uh, the bitter waters, the bitter experiences of our life to be made sweet. And God is able to do that. 
There's experiences that I had that in the moment I, I abhorred them. But now as I look back at some of those times that were so difficult, I see how much that the Lord uh, was with me and helped me. And through that, I was able to grow closer. As we've all heard Brother Ronald say, we can either get bitter or we can get better. And so our bitter situations can make us better if we'll put our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ. So they've uh, experienced bitter waters made sweet. They need manna and quail, the Lord sends it. They need water, the Lord gives it. Now he knows they're able to battle. And so God does not stand in. God does not take them a different way. God doesn't say, well, they can't handle the Amalekites now, so let's find a different direction. Now God allows them to go into the battle. Uh, and it catches them unawares. It catches them by surprise. And listen, did Satan ever come knock on your door and say, hey, I'll be back next Tuesday and I'm going to attempt you then and I'm going to try to get you in trouble. He doesn't do it that way, does he? No, he comes and tries to take us by surprise. He looks for the feeble spot. He looks at our hindermost end where we're not paying attention. What does Peter say about him? He says, our adversary, Satan, is... Like a roaring lion walking about seeking whom he may devour. So what are we supposed to do? He says, be sober, be vigilant. That means be aware and be clear thinking. The children of Israel, they haven't experienced this yet. Yes, they've had taskmasters, but they haven't had an army come against them in this way. The, the only time they've had an army, God took care of that. God kept a wall between them all night long. But now God's going to let them fight Notice what it says. After they're attacked, Moses says to Joshua, you choose out men. Notice Moses doesn't choose them out. He gives a responsibility. The first time Joshua's mentioned, he says, you choose out men. He's going to be a captain. He's going to be a general. He says, you choose out men. You look who's fit, who's able, who's right. You choose out men. And you go out and you fight with Amalek tomorrow. Now, they don't have time for training. I mean, our military, I mean, what do they do? You go through, I don't know how many weeks, uh, basic training. Uh, just the basics of warfare, uh, fitness, uh, uh, defense, offense. Uh, our armies, they train individuals how to do this. Uh, Joshua doesn't have time to train this army. But there's going to be a wonderful picture of prayer. Uh, go on in just a moment. He says, this is what you're going to do, Joshua. I'd be like, wait a minute, Moses. I think you need to lead this. He says, no, I've got something more important to do. You're going to choose out men and you're going to go fight Amalek. We're not going to let this stand. We're not going to just lay down and take it as our enemy comes against the weak ones among us. We're going to go out and we're going to fight against it. And it's your responsibility to lead the charge, lead the battle, and choose out the men. And you go out and fight. Well, what are you going to do, Moses? Well, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take the rod of God. Why the rod of God? The rod of God has been a very powerful tool so far, has it not? I mean, the rod of God uh, devoured the other uh, serpents uh, when he stood before Pharaoh. The rod of God turned uh, rivers to blood, uh, brought lice, uh, brought darkness. Uh, it parted the Red Sea. It brought water out of a rock in a desert place. This rod has been shown in the hand of God to be a very mighty tool. When God asked that question in Exodus chapter 3, what is that in thine hand? A rod. Well, that rod is going to become very, very important in the history of the nation of Israel. Now, there was nothing important about the rod itself, but the God of the rod. So Moses says, here's what I'm going to do. He says, I'm going to go on the top of the hill with the rod of God in mine hand. Moses, what are you going to do up there? I'm going to pray. He says, I'm going to lift up my hands. I'm going to lift up the rod of God. 
And what happens? When he lifts up the rod of God and his hands are lifted up, Israel prevails. But what happens? Have you ever tried to just stand and hold your arms up? Try to do that for about an hour. If you can do it for an hour, I doubt you can. Go on to two. Try for three. Try for four. You know what's going to Your arms get heavy. Say, well, they weigh the same. Yeah, but your strength goes. Before long, you're going to find your arms are drifting down. Well, thankfully, there were two faithful men that went up there with Moses, Aaron and Hur. Aaron, of course, is the brother of Moses. Tradition says, who knows? Tradition says that Hur was probably the husband of Miriam, the sister of Moses. Don't know if that's so or not, but just throw it out there. It might be. So here goes Aaron and Hur. They put a stone under Moses, and they both hold up his hands. They take the job of holding up one each, the arms of Moses. You here have a picture not only of a praying man, but people who support this man in prayer. Now listen, prayer is a labor. Sometimes we, I've said it even this week, well, I'll do, the, I'll do what I can, I'll pray for you. And a lot of times when I say that, I'm thinking, well, I, I, I wish I could do more. All I can do is pray when actually the very best thing that I can do is pray because... Uh, Number one, I don't have the ability uh, to heal. I don't have the ability to deliver. I I just, I don't. I'm so limited and frail and weak in the things that I'm able to do. But one of the things that I can do is call upon the God of heaven who has shown himself to these people to be a mighty God. I want to think that Joshua took great encouragement as Moses said, I'm going to go to the top of the hill. I'm going to go to the top of the mountain and I'm going to hold the rod of God and I'm going to pray. And so long as my hands are up, you're going to prevail. And so I just, in my mind, I get a glimpse of Joshua occasionally glancing up to the mountain and seeing the hand of Moses lifted up and we're prevailing because there's one interceding in our behalf praying for us right now in this moment. Notice in Colossians uh, chapter 4, verse 12. Paul says to the church of Colossae, he says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ, saluteth you. Notice what he describes about his prayer. He says, always laboring fervently for you in prayers that ye may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. Prayer is a labor. It is for me at least. Now, now I'll tell you, in the emergency prayers, I can do those just as good as anybody. When it's, oh no, I'm about to be destroyed, I can call on the God of heaven real quick. It's the faithful, persistent prayer that I have trouble with. You know, the Bible says that the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. You know, my problem in prayer is I get distracted. I get weary. And my mind drifts away or something else happens. But this man, Epaphras, he, he labored fervently and diligently in prayer for them. And that's what happens here in Exodus chapter 17. Moses, he prays diligently, and when he grew weary, he had two men to help him that, that encouraged him in the moment. And that's what you and I ought to be, encouragers of one another in our lives of prayer, that we ought to be people that are supplicants, that are intercessors, that we cry to the Lord, that we, that we plead, that we beseech, that we pray. There's so many ways the Bible describes prayer. 
and that we would together help one another in this very, very vital, important, and effective tool that God has handed you and I, that you and I have direct communication to heaven itself, to the greatest power that there is in creation and beyond creation, is God our Father, and at any moment you and I have direct access to call upon His name, His power, His help, His deliverance, and we ought to avail ourselves of that every moment of our lives. That's why the Bible lets us know that we're to pray without ceasing. So they defeat Amalek. The Amalekites are, are discomfited. They're put aside with the edge of the sword. And so Moses is told by God, write this for memorial in a book and rehearse it. And he does. And then Moses builds an altar. And called the name of it Jehovah Nisi, meaning the Lord, my banner. Why, why call this place that? Why that? Have you ever seen some of the, just think of the, the image of the Battle of Iwo Jima. And when the Americans took that island, what's the most iconic photograph of World War II? It's the raising of the flag on Iwo Jima. What was that? What was that saying? It was saying, we have victory. Now here he says, this altar is to be called Jehovah, meaning the self-existing eternal one is our banner. He is our victory. And the Bible tells us that he is exactly that. In Psalm 60 verse 4, notice what David writes about the Lord. He says, thou hast given a banner to them that fear thee, that it may be displayed because of the truth. Here God has given a banner for the people of God that fear the Lord. What is this banner? It's a banner showing that you and I have triumphed in the Lord Jesus Christ. That as it says in the 8th chapter of the book of Romans, that you and I are more than conquerors. Not that we shall be at some time, but right now presently, you and I are more than conquerors through Him that loved us. In Isaiah, the 11th chapter, in the 10th verse, it talks about a rod of Jesse, meaning the Lord Jesus Christ. Him, uh, the Gentiles would trust. He said, he shall be an ensign for the people. An ensign is a banner, meaning that the Lord Jesus Christ would be a banner of victory that even the Gentiles would trust in. And of course, my favorite one is found in Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 4. He brought me to his banqueting house, and his banner, his flag of victory over me was love. So here, Moses calls this place the banner of Jehovah. Jehovah gave us triumph. Jehovah gave us victory. God in his kindness didn't allow these people to go through these things until he knew they were ready to go through them. And then even when they went through them, it didn't mean that there was no danger whatsoever. I suspect that there were children of Israel that died this day. But even yet, the God of heaven heard the prayers of the intercessor Moses and the children of Israel. They were delivered by the mighty hand of God, by God strengthening their hands through the prayers of the faithful servant of God, Moses. So listen, it's vital that you pray for yourself, but also for everyone else in this congregation. Because I'm telling you, the Amalekite, Satan, he's looking for our weak spots. He'll come to the hindermost part. He'll look for the feeble. He'll look for the young. He'll look for the weak. And sometimes that's you and me. You may say, well, I'm in the, in the prime of my strength. You may be naturally, but spiritually in this moment, you may be 
as weak as someone who's 100 years of age or as weak as an infant child. So never get so proud. The Bible makes clear, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed, lest he fall. So, but remember that you and I have the responsibility, but also the blessed privilege to pray and intercede. So that hopefully our brothers and sisters, when they come under attack, will have the help of God and the deliverance of heaven. And Satan will not be able to take them out of the way of discipleship and following the commandment of the Lord. May God bless you today as our prayer.